Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to be back with you tonight. We've had such a wonderful day. Uh, Luke and Peggy here are just uh, wonderful, and she is a great cook, and their hospitality is very special, and it's always uh, good to go into the homes of those who study with us, and uh, we have an opportunity to get to know each other better, and that's been wonderful today. I'd like for you to turn tonight, if you will, very quickly now, to uh, the book of John first. <clears throat> and on the night of his betrayal, Jesus spent quite a bit of time with his disciples <clears throat> talking to them about how the continuance of his word would take place after he had gone away. And, of course, that centered in his sending the Holy Spirit, who is called a comforter, paraclete is the word, but a helper or a comforter. Jesus uh, says to them in chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, cannot, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. The helper that they had had until this time was Christ himself. He had been with them. He had comforted them. He had provided peace for them in some very difficult kinds of situations. He had provided comfort to them in understanding God's Word and uh, receiving uh, the meaning of His works and uh, watching His life. All of that had been a great comfort to them spiritually. It had been a help to them spiritually. But now he says they would have another helper, another comforter, and he identifies him as the Holy Spirit. Now if you turn over to chapter 14, verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Two things that the Holy Spirit would be doing with them. He would be helping them to remember what he had himself taught them while he was with them. And then, he says, he would teach them all the other things that they would need to know. Obviously, these men are fallible. They are uh, subject to error. They can make mistakes. And so they needed a helper in the revelation of God's truth. I hope when you think Holy Spirit, you think inspiration, revelation. That's his primary work. Too many people, I think, when they hear the term Holy Spirit or the name Holy Spirit... 
or the identification of one as the Holy Spirit, they think miracles right away. But we do not think miracles because the miracles were to establish what he would do. It's all right to think miracles, I suppose. But the miracles were confirming his work. His work was to reveal the message of Scripture, the message of God's will to us, the message of Christ. All right. So he was, uh, the Holy Spirit, he says, would be a companion or a comforter. He would be a teacher with them. Over in chapter 15, he says he would be a witness for them in verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So, he would be providing them evidence through testimony. Remember, we said this morning, the biblical best evidence is the eyewitness testimony that is provided. And he says, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So these apostles would then be providers of evidence as they went along. Now, if you'll drop on down in verse 16, I mean chapter 16, at verse uh, 7 beginning, this one would be an advocate as well. He would be a comforter, a helper, he would be a teacher, he would be a witness, and he would be an advocate. So in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It uh, would seem to these apostles that it would not be to their advantage for Jesus to go away and leave them alone in the world. But he says it is to your advantage. You see, if Jesus had stayed with them, they would not have been able to go into all the world and preach the gospel with his presence with them. But if he goes away and the Holy Spirit, who is God the Spirit, is with each of them wherever they go, then that's to their advantage. If Jesus had stayed, they would be located, you see. So he says, it is to your advantage that... Uh, I go away. Then you can accomplish the mission that I have given you to do. And he talks about that. And then in verse 13 he says, and I'm jumping a little bit here to save some time, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Jesus said in verse 12 there, I have many things still to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It was going to be necessary for another to come and help them to understand, to be able to present, to articulate the message of the gospel in its completeness because they, would not, uh, they were not able yet to uh, understand and to comprehend all the things uh, that he would like for them to know. It wasn't because he was a bad teacher. It was that they were just not competent yet to understand everything. You, you would get that, wouldn't you? If you are a student in school 
and uh, you're in the uh, you're you're a senior in high school, and you have just finished uh, algebra and trig, but you're in the honor society, and uh, you uh, maybe are even valedictorian of your class, and your teacher comes up to you and she says, uh, uh, "You're not." ready yet for differential equations. I would like to teach you differential equations. Well, that comes after Cal 3. And you haven't had Cal 1 yet. So, that's the position that these apostles were in, you see. They had not had basic calculus yet. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you one who will advocate for me and who will teach you all these things. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 now, how they received this message is revealed to us very clearly. And I'll just read this, beginning at verse 10. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, the things He's going to reveal are the things He says in verse 9, have not... Uh, are not able, we're not able to see with our eyes. These are spiritual truths. They reflect the will of God. He says, I have not seen. You, you don't just look around and see these things. And he says, ear has not heard. These are not just things that you hear out in normal conversation, running around in the world with worldly people. So, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. You don't think these up. These don't come because of your human wisdom or whatever. You don't think this up. These are things that come from the mind of God, the things which God has prepared for those who love Him, you see. That's what you're going to receive. And he says, then in verse 13, these things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, or with spiritual words, as some of the translations say. These are things we have not received. The Spirit that is from God has revealed these things unto us. And so we sometimes say, this book is God's Word in God's own words. And we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Scripture that God revealed the Word. Edwin gets up here and he talks to you from the Scripture and he's explaining a certain text to you and so he will maybe flash up on the screen the original Word that was presented there. And he lays his case on the original Word that was put there. And he lays his case on that word because he believes that God gave that word and he meant what he meant by that word and we follow it, you see. If it weren't important what the words say, then we'd just take some kind of general thoughts like a lot of preachers in the world do. And we'd just go with that and we'd uh, see how that pleases the people and how people think. But we go back to God's Word in God's own words. 
And that's what we believe. And we unashamedly believe that because we believe that God gave it. Now, the question that that raises and brings up to us is, how do we know that we have the books of the Bible that we should have? How do we know that we have God's Word? And that's the point that we want to talk about a little bit this evening. And you can see that we've used this word canon, the canon of Scripture. The word canon was derived from a Sumerian word that means read. And it referred then from that read that stands straight up in the marsh or whatever, you know, grows straight up. Uh, then the word came to refer to anything that was straight and Upright. The reed then became the measuring stick, like we would have a yardstick. They would have a reed, and they would cut it off at a certain point and make it a certain length, and that would be their measuring stick. The Greek form of this word canon describes a rule or a standard or a model, just like we would have a yardstick is our rule or our standard for measurement, and so on. The canon of the Old Testament, of course, refers to the books of the writings that properly belong in the Jewish Scripture, and the canon of the New Testament refers to the 27 books of the Gospel, the New Testament, we call it. These writings are given by many inspired prophets, and this is one of the great evidences that we see as we look at uh, the Bible being from God, the powerful evidence of the fact that it is totally consistent. The fact that it is written over a period, the Bible altogether, the 66 books of the Bible, of more than 1,500 years by more than 40 different writers. Yet, there are no errors that can be proved within it. It is completely accurate in its prophecies, where God said what would come to pass. But I guess we still have to ask, how did this book come together? Why do we accept certain writings from God and we reject other writings? Is there some compelling evidence to show that these are the books that God intended to be kept and reverenced as his word? How do we know that we have the right books? There are some common misconceptions. I'll point to a couple of them uh, for you. Uh, some somehow believe that the canon of Scripture was not developed uh, by, uh, or that it was developed by men over a long uh, period of time. Of course, the Scripture was uh, developed. Uh, the scripture was given over a long period of time, but the canon was not developed slowly by men. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And the canon of scripture was not developed and approved by a group of religious leaders at the Council of Trent in 1546. The Catholic Church, of, of course, claims to be the uh, father of the Bible. And, of course, that is not true. What we need to understand is that the Jews kept the Old Testament 
we'll talk about the Old Testament first of all here for a moment. Uh, the Jews kept the Old Testament known writings of their inspired leaders and prophets very sacred. The books of Moses were identified because they knew Moses was with God. And Moses had written those books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were cherished from the time they were written within the close society of the Israelites, and the people kept them cherished through all of that time. That uh, is perhaps illustrated, I hope you can see these pictures uh, in this uh, light, uh, by a Jewish sect called the Essenes that grew up about uh, 150 B.C., their followers moved out to the caves of the Dead Sea, and they feared the Romans, wanted to preserve their Jewish heritage, and so they preserved the Jewish documents in sealed clay pots, which they hid in the caves out near the Dead Sea. We did not know this until 1947, when a Bedouin uh, shepherd boy... Uh, threw a rock into one of these caves and heard a kind of an explosion. Of course, things build up in these clay pots. And he had thrown his rock in there and hit one of them, and it kind of exploded. And so, uh, the Bedouins uh, at this place called Kerbet Qumran uh, found 825 copies, including multiple copies, of almost all the Old Testament books except the book of Esther, which is not in it, in what they had preserved. And those date back to somewhere around 150 B.C. That's before the New Testament was written. Those are some of the oldest uh, uh, copies of Scripture that we now have. Uh, Jesus would have read from these from scrolls like these in the synagogues. Many of them are now preserved in the Shrine of the Book Museum in Jerusalem. If you're interested, uh, you can see some of that on the web. Uh, you can see almost anything in the world anymore on the web, can't you? And so you can uh, trace some of the things that I'm talking about this evening uh, on the web. There is one called the Isaiah Scroll. Looks like this. Uh, that is there. There is a fragment of uh, Samuel, the books of Samuel, which date back to about 250 B.C. There. There are 30 copies of the Psalms, which were found in cave number 11. And what these old copies did was proved the quality of the later manuscripts that we have uh, of the Scriptures. It is amazing, absolutely amazing, that the word-for-word -word transcription of what was found, 200, dating to 250 B.C., is identical virtually with what was our manuscript evidence much later than that. Well, that 
has to do mostly with the Old Testament uh, scriptures. The New Testament scriptures were copied and kept by the churches. And you need to know that, I think. The epistles of Paul were some of the first books written in the New Testament. And about that same time, the gospel narratives were written. Churches accepted them as being inspired because they came from the apostles. Just like the Jews accepted certain books as being inspired because they came from Moses. And Moses, of course, had been confirmed as God's man, God's prophet, God's messenger, God's revealer of truth to the people by the miracles that he had performed. And so the apostles were in that position. And Paul's and Matthew's gospel, for example, John's writings, were confirmed on the same basis. They were kept and they were read in all of the churches. You might like to read a passage of Scripture over in the book of Colossians in chapter 4. Let me take you there for just a moment. And what this Scripture tells us is that they copied in the church, in the first century church, they copied and circulated the writings of the apostles so that sufficient copies were made to keep them safe. But now look at what Paul says to these brethren. He says, when this epistle, this is 4.16 in the book of Colossians, when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the letter from, from Laodicea. Now, other scriptures, I could give you uh, a lot of other uh, scriptures uh, on this, like Second Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. I'll say these to you and we'll get them on the tape. How about that? Then if you'd like to follow some of these, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, and 5, verse 27. These passages all relate to the fact that these brethren received the word of the apostles written in these letters as inspired. They were told to copy them. They were told to spread them around, cause them to be read in the other churches as the inspired uh, Word of God. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 4, Galatians 1, verse 2 are two others that you might want to read that have to do with the Scriptures being copied by either the writer or by the churches and distributed around. So uh, we could... Uh, I did a lecture on that whole thing sometimes, and uh, it's just really impressive to look at the responsibility that the Apostle Paul put on the churches to be sure that these written epistles were held sacred by them, kept and distributed to other brethren. Books which were known to be uninspired were not copied, and they were not distributed. Now, where did the collection of these books come from? Well the collection did not come from the Catholic Church as the Catholic Church would like for us to believe through their councils approving 
Actually, the Roman church had little control over the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church had the same canon of scriptures that the Western Church, uh, the Church of Rome, uh, had and accepted these 27 books of the New Testament as the same. So, what we're seeing is, in all of this, so I'm, I'm saying all of this for your comfort in picking up your Bible and reading your Bible, that it is truly the Word of God. The Jews maintained the Old Testament books. The churches maintained the New Testament writings. And just so that you will know that this was all universally accepted, certainly by the 4th century A.D., it was essentially established by about 130 A.D. The earliest writings were Paul's early epistles around 48. The last of them were John's writings around 90 A.D. And so here are evidence from the writers of that early 2nd century. This is long before the Council of Trent or any of these other councils put together what they believed about this. Clement uh, quotes statements from Jesus which otherwise appear in the Gospels and quotes them as being the Scripture. Uh, let's see, I went too far there. A letter from Barnabas before 130 A.D. uses many of the phrases from the Gospels and cites them as Scriptures. Papias quotes from the Gospels in his Expositions of the Sayings of the Lord. And uh, we have copies of the Muratorium can, uh, Canon, which uh, provides understanding of uh, the books accepted by the churches before the end of the second century. So this is long before uh, what we have. William Albright, a noted scholar in this whole area of uh, biblical criticism, we call it sometimes, noted, we may rest assured that the text of the Bible has been preserved with an accuracy perhaps unparalleled in any other Near Eastern literature. We never question Julius Caesar or the writings of Socrates. You cannot imagine how much better this evidence is. And just to show you some of that, this is the Codex Alexandrinus housed in the British Museum, dates to 450 A.D., uh, found among the Byzantine writings, one of the great biblical manuscripts that we have. That's dated to 450. That's not good enough for you? Let's back up a little bit. The Codex Sinaiticus, housed at St. Catherine's Monastery on uh, Mount Sinai. There's a monastery on Mount Sinai over in the peninsula. Contains all of the New Testament, most of the Old Testament. It dates to 350 A.D., one of the great uh, manuscripts of the Bible. The one in the Vatican <coughs> dates to about 325 A.D. It is missing a first part of Genesis, part of the New Testament uh, book of Hebrews that follows uh, chapter 9, verse 15. 
but there are some uh, fragments uh, associated with this that date even earlier than that. Want to go on back just a little bit? This is the Chester Beatty papyri. It dates to about 250 A.D. This is housed in Dublin, uh, found in Egypt, and has been very carefully dated. And if you want to go back just a little bit further, the Bodmer papyri is a fragment, the earliest known copy of the book of Luke, and the writings of Jude and Peter contains much of the book of John, the Gospel of John, dates to about 125 A.D. You see what we're showing you here? This is not something that was all brought together by the Catholic Church in the 1500s. And the John Ryland fragment dates back to about 117, somewhere in the 120s perhaps, oldest existing copy of any book of the New Testament. It's the book of John. This piece is from John 18. So, what this all says to us, now this is, this is pretty strong evidence, my friends, of the veracity of what you have in your hand when you hold your Bible. And uh, I'd like for you to think about uh, this fact, uh, Lavi's history of ancient nations. There are 20 manuscript copies have been found of that. Caesar's Gallic Wars, there are 10 manuscripts of that. Tacitus's Annals, some of the great, these are some of the great books of ancient literature. Nobody really questions their veracity. But look at the small number of manuscripts that we have on them. The New Testament, we have now at least 5,664 currently known manuscripts. And we just keep discovering them all the time. Well, that's strong, isn't it? Take another look. Livy's oldest known manuscript is more than 500 years after he wrote it. Julius Caesar, 900 years after he wrote it. Tacitus, 800 years after he wrote it. Part of the Gospel of John, we have 40 years after John wrote it. Now that's strong, isn't it? Evidence. So I'm saying to you, we need to know some of these things. And I know that uh, when we come to church, we don't uh, study some of this kind of information all the time. But you need that kind of assurance and how confident you can be that we have the books that the people of God have kept. I wish that I had a lot more time tonight. I, I would like to talk with you about uh, the test of authenticity of these books. I'd like to uh, show you some things uh, evidence from uh, authorship, uh, evidence from integration, uh, evidence from connecting links, corroboration of this information on both the Old and the New Testament. I have lots of material right here on the stand that we just don't have time to talk about tonight. But I hope you see from what we have said 
first of all, what God intended and how Jesus talked to his apostles about this revelation, how it came. It came by the Holy Spirit revealed to us. And we can be assured of that now by the evidences that are provided for it. The question for me is not, do I have the right book? The question for me is, am I following this book? Am I doing what I should do? Am I believing what I need to believe? Am I studying it as from God? When we say, this is God's Word in God's own words, then that means I need to pay attention to that. And particularly, if I'm going to be a faithful follower of God and do God's will, I must know what He says, and then I must do it. The question is, am I doing that? Does this book mean anything to me? Do I follow it? Do I try to obey the Word of God and the will of God as it's expressed in this Word? And that's, that's the big, big question for me. I know that when you're talking with your friends who are atheists or you're talking with your friends that are agnostics and all these questions come up, you need to have some answers for that. And you need not know how to respond. I had a letter, an email letter, uh, sent to me and several other gospel preachers uh, this weekend uh, from a gospel preacher up in the Northeast who is working with a member of the congregation there in the U.S. Naval Academy who is talking to uh, an atheist and trying to lead him to Christ and wanted to know some information about how to talk to him about whether there's a God or not, and whether the Bible is the Scriptures. So I'm going to try to help him with that, because it's important to do that. But those of you in this audience, the question is really, isn't it, now that you see the evidence and you know that this is from God, am I doing what God wants me to do. Some of you in this audience have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to do that. And you need to do that tonight. You don't need to put that off. You don't need to wait to be a Christian. You don't need to delay in saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrected Lord. I believe in God. I have a conscience. And God gave that to me that calls upon me to do what is right. And I must do what is right. And I know from the Scripture revealed by the Holy Spirit that this is what I'm to do. Repent ye and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Believing that, you need to come while we stand and while we sing our songs, please.